0: This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever changing healthcare environments. Brought to you by the Dallas Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again.
1: And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're so glad you're with us today. And you know, it's that time of the year. We're coming upon fall. We have A lot of sporting events. We have soccer, we have football, we even have fall baseball. We have all kinds of sports. But unfortunately, sometimes sports injuries occur. And one of those injuries is sports concussions. They do occur in our young people. We're glad that we've got Dr. Scott Burkhardt with us today. He's a neuropsychologist at Children's Health Andrews Institute for Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Dr. Burkhardt, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Many of our listeners out there are parents, and they've got children that are participating in sports this fall. Can you talk a little bit about concussions you receive in sports as opposed to concussions you may get, say, in a car accident or even like falling off a ladder?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think what we see more often and more frequently in sports is a voluntary participation sometimes in you know, an athletic endeavor that has some risk for some injuries uh, as opposed to an accident, uh, whether that be car or, or a fall. Uh, we are certainly aware that sports come with some inherent injury risk, but we look at it as our responsibility for the things that sports provide young people both socially and emotionally and mentally, to be able to uh, keep them as safe as possible and and that means taking care of concussions when they occur,
1: you know even falling off a bike when when kids are riding a bicycle that's why it's so important they wear a helmet. Do you see concussions from children falling off of bikes?
2: Oh of course, yeah, we see them from all sorts of things. I think that's the I'm never surprised by uh, how Kids can experience this injury or how they might sustain a concussion, Uh, but we certainly treat them all the same. You know, In, in in our line of work, a concussion is a concussion. It doesn't really matter how it occurred.
1: Do you have any opinion or advice for our listeners, especially the parents, when they buy helmets for their children? I'm assuming you want them to get one of the best that fits them properly and protects them.
2: Correct. Yes, I'm not a big helmet researcher, but there are annual uh, guidelines that go out. They're actually produced by the university. I think it's Virginia Tech University, who produces a star rating not only for football helmets but for bicycle helmets, and uh, I think they even do hockey and lacrosse.
1: That's great, Virginia Tech's my alma mater. I'm glad to hear that. I hope. Uh, well, there you go. I go, hope, go Hokies. Uh, you're right.
2: <laughs> I think I'm. I'm pretty sure it is Virginia Tech. Yes, sir.
1: Right. So if parents, let's say, aren't out of practice or for whatever the reason they miss a game and their child comes home and they don't realize that they potentially had a pretty hard lick to the head or their head hit the ground, what would you say common signs and symptoms that parents should be aware of that their child may have sustained a concussion?
2: That's actually a really good point, too. The most common symptom reported with concussions is headaches, but we know that within the medical community, headaches can be caused by a variety of things. The typical headache for concussion, though, is a hallmark presentation of of a frontal based behind the forehead, behind the eyes, sort of a pressure sensation. Uh, We see that most commonly if there's any problems in terms of eye movement in association with the concussion. But I would tell you that the number one symptom that should start to raise parents' concern, uh, and it literally comes straight off of our symptom reporting sheets, is when your child just tells you that they don't feel right, or they feel off, or they feel slowed down.
1: You know, what would you say as you talk to parents and you talk to adolescents, precautions you recommend to help prevent concussions?
2: I think the best thing that parents and athletes can do is to be educated. Uh, We've done a great job introducing this injury and, uh, you know, certainly addressing some of the concerns around it. We can always do better. But the more equipped you are with education of what it looks like, how to find specialists, I would tell you that I'm a big proponent of when this injury occurs, uh, going to a, a, a specialist or a medical specialist who sees concussions and does that as part of their clinical care model. It's a specialized injury that requires specialized care. So those two can really, you know, from a preventative standpoint, once the injury occurs, shorten recovery times exponentially.
1: You know, we see a lot of professional athletes sustain a concussion, especially in pro football, and they have to go through a concussion protocol. When for a child should they return to physical activity after they've had a concussion?
2: We've actually learned in recent research that early activity can be extremely beneficial in the recovery time. Now that doesn't mean going back into a sport with a known risk for collision or contact, but a stationary bike, a treadmill, going for a walk, uh, you know, activating uh, that system and, and really kind of getting some physical activity going early helps tremendously with concussion recovery. So we've been pushing more and more, Recently, based on some of this research with clinical care towards the direction of early exercise, as long as it's prescribed uh, and it's under specific guidelines.
1: Have you noticed uh, in your uh, patients that you treat female versus male? I'm just curious, is there a group that sustains more concussions?
2: There's not necessarily a group that sustains more uh, by gender. Uh, what we know about the gender research and concussion is that there's a little bit of a disparity in terms of how the recovery process goes, even how symptoms may be reported. You know, what we see in terms of needs is it re- really pertains to things that are tertiary to the concussion, the school support, maybe the behavioral health support, you know, some of the, the, the physical nature or somatic nature of how the symptoms present can vary. Uh, but, not anything necessarily in terms of of acquired or or how they're sustained.
1: You know, each concussion, I'm sure, is a little different. Do you sometimes have to do an individualized care plan for each child, or is it kind of the same protocol?
2: No, that's great uh, and a really good question. No, they're all different. You know, it's We live in a world where humans are different and brains are different, and and so each person is is different. I've been practicing now for almost, gosh, over a decade, and I would tell you I've never seen the same concussion twice because even a child who may sustain multiple injuries, it's different in terms of how they've developed uh, and maybe what the current circumstances require uh, versus what they might have experienced previously. So, no, I've never seen the same concussion twice.
3: Given your knowledge of this, how would you advise high school team physicians about their concussion protocols?
2: I think the state of Texas has done a great job with their uh, concussion program and and whether that's being overseen at the level on game days by the athletic trainer or uh, team physician, to your point. But I think it's knowing folks who can help with this injury. You know, there's a lot of injuries that can come up in the context of high school sports participation and Having someone in their back pocket who knows and understands and treats this injury uh, and can
3: uh, is, a, is a great resource. And when we come back, Dr. Scott Burkhart from Children's Health is going to be telling us about new treatments for concussions that will blow your mind. If you have kids in sports, you don't want to miss this next segment. Next on the human side of healthcare.
0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again.
3: Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Scott Burkhart with the Children's Health Andrews Institute, talking about concussions and our kids playing sports. And after a child has had multiple concussions, Dr. Burkhart, is it advisable for them not to play that sport anymore?
2: Yeah, first of all, that's rare that we get into a situation with that. We've progressed the science and the clinical care of this injury quite a lot to be able to significantly decrease how many of those conversations that we have to have. But, again, everybody's different. And, you know, for some people, one concussion is too many. And it becomes more a matter of having a conversation with them and explaining the factors that are at play. It's rarely just an isolated conversation with the individual it often is a conversation that includes their athletic trainer, parents, coaches, you know, it's a, it's really a community when an athlete has to stop playing a sport. And then I think what my main emphasis or my main focus is in follow-up to that is assuring that we have a good support system around that athlete. And so what are going to be the behavioral health or mental health challenges that come from no longer being able to play a sport, whether, your career runs out or from injury. Those are always really tough challenges.
3: So I'm curious, with a concussion, what exactly are you treating?
2: That's a great question, Thomas. Yeah, We have found more recently with the nature of the injury, but also what we've learned through kind of more clinical discovery than anything, that a tremendous amount of this injury occurs within the ocular motor or how the eyes move. Uh, So that system and how it communicates with the brainstem, we can see specific symptoms to that area. There's musculature, so there's a pair of agonist and antagonist pairs or, you know, working together or against each other kind of pairs inside the eye that actually control our eye movement. And the brain cells or neural pathways that communicate to those muscles can be affected and slowed with a concussion. We also have learned a lot about what's called the vestibular system. So we may commonly think about that from an adult perspective as vertigo, but the vestibular system controls how our brain processes space and movement. And so those two systems in conjunction are often the most vulnerable, but where we tend to tailor the majority of the rehab.
3: Interesting. So walking it back from there to the point of the accident, I guess there's a what, bruise to a part of the brain that then triggers that functionality?
2: Yeah, I would almost think of it less as a bruise and more of how the brain moves inside the skull, right? So the brain doesn't butt up just directly against the skull. We have layers of fluid and cerebral spinal fluid that protect that. But during the acceleration and deceleration that a head goes through, that rapid acceleration deceleration is what causes the change on the really neuronal level.
3: So does the brain then heal itself over time?
2: Absolutely. The brain is arguably one of the most resilient organs. It's really, I, you know, I'm a brain guy, but to me, the most impressive organ in the human body, it's the only organ in the human body that will shut off power basically to itself so that other organs can continue to function. Uh, it's really powerful. And, and so the second the injury occurs, the brain is actually protecting itself, uh, we've Come to learn through science and really some great research that was done out of UCLA that there's almost a cascade effect at the cellular level in the brain that is protective and inherently immediately gets the brain working towards healing itself.
3: So, we're talking about kids here, and that was one of the things I know you and Steve brushed up against this the long term impacts for kids who have suffered multiple concussions. So given that kids in their 30s, 40s, 50s who have had multiple concussions in sports, are they affected?
2: It depends, again, how individualized it is. I would tell you that we have learned more and more about the lasting effects of what can linger if the injury goes untreated. So there are likely individuals who have had concussions that may not have had them treated at the level that we're talking about that may still experience symptoms and can trace those symptoms back to a head injury it's amazing how we as human beings can adapt to what we consider to be a new normal and so if we hit our head and we maybe don't feel quite right and eventually just doesn't ever kind of get back we quickly accept whether it's our bodies or our minds sometimes things that linger that you know we don't address for whatever reason but I would tell you yes that if there's still effects in terms of any of the things that I'm talking about today then you know there there's still a potential for rehab and recovery.
3: Wow. What I'm hearing is a shift. So you're saying that there are treatments now that are available that, I mean, it used to be that concussions were like, there's not much we can do, give it time.
2: No, I agree. I, and I think that that's exactly on point. You know, in the last decade, we've learned more about this injury, not to simplify, but to say that this is no longer just sit and wait for it to get better. There's active things that we've learned that, a significantly improve recovery time and outcomes once this injury occurs. You know, I would relay it to, I work with a lot of sports medicine guys, and I would relay it to an ACL injury. An ACL injury used to be career-ending until Adrian Peterson came back in six months. You know, that's a kind of local Oklahoma tie for, for folks in this area. And so to see that and to see how much the science progressed the injury, that's a lot like what's happened with concussion. We've gone from this thing being kind of the big, you know, scary front page plastered all over, you know, you get one and it's catastrophic to now understanding this more at a level that's very treatable. It's very manageable. It's a big part of what we do is is to disarm what goes on around it, but recognize the cluster of symptoms that can be related to the injury. And I would tell you we have a direct rehabilitative treatment option for every symptom uh, or dysfunction that comes up with this injury at this point. There's really not anything that we can't uh, proactively start working on improving in order to shorten the recovery time as well as uh, to ultimately return the brain back to functioning the way that it should.
3: Just give me an example.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, the two that I talked to you about earlier, the ocular motor and the vestibular, we actively use physical therapy for both of those. And so if we recognize that there's a dysfunction early, uh, we have great physical therapists at at Children's Health Andrews Institute that we kick to them and and they immediately start working on the recovery process with exercises, identifying the areas of dysfunction, uh, what the athlete can tolerate, what they can't, uh, and being proactive.
3: So therapy, are there any medicines?
2: Not any that we use a lot at the pediatric level. Uh, there are centers around the country that have explored uh, different medications. Uh, you know, all of them would be off-label in terms of their utility. At the college-level region, even the professional-level medications may be used. But we find that an active uh, and a proactive rehab-based approach is typically what works best.
3: How long has this been around?
2: I trained at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center probably 2011 to 2013 is when I completed my fellowship. But I would say that there are more and more uh, neuropsychologists, uh, neurologists who focus in this area um, that are are really great if they specialize in concussion and being adaptive and understanding what this injury needs and taking this proactive approach. So it's becoming much more common and mainstream uh, the more that – we get the information out there. Uh, there's several of us, even in the DFW area, that all treat very
3: similarly. Is children's health on a cutting-edge forefront in this field?
2: Oh, absolutely, I would say yes. We have an active uh, clinical fellowship program where we train individuals on in how to do this. Uh, we're actively participating in research. We do a lot of clinically relevant research uh, that you know has direct outcomes into recovery and clinical care and how can we be better. And, you know, our goal ultimately with our research agenda is how do we get better at identifying the things that ultimately positively impact recovery and how quickly can we do that?
3: You know, this is almost to me like the analogy of the airplane. Once the Wright brothers took off, so did air flight, right? Is this something that you are going to pioneer a whole new level of treatment across the board with concussions?
2: Uh, I, I appreciate you thinking that, <laughs> that I could, but no, I would say I'm not comparable to the Wright brothers when it comes to concussion. Um, but I think that there's a group of really proactive clinicians, right? Who are, you know, they're scientist practitioners and they're at places around the country and they're pushing things forward to be better at this injury. And we're actively to your point, trying to figure out, how to best care for this injury. And I don't think that we're there yet, but so that the concussion becomes less catastrophic head injury and more sprained ankle. Right? none of us really worry about sprained ankles in sports. We know that there's a prescribed treatment program and elevate and that's kind of the goal. At least that's my goal with concussions. And then I know I know it's comparing brains to ankles, but how do we get to that level where this becomes an injury that we have a prescribed known best practices treatment model that works. And so to your point, I guess, you know, I I would say I'm working on clinical research that's relevant to establishing that best practices model.
3: This has been Dr. Scott Burkhart. He's a neuropsychologist at Children's Health Andrews Institute for Orthopedics and Sports Medicine with some cutting-edge new treatments for kids playing sports who get a concussion. If you missed this interview, check it out on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about shucking a few pounds, losing a few pounds, <laughs> with Dr. Ruby Shaw from Presbyterian Plano coming up next on The Human Side of Healthcare.
0: Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life with DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller.
1: And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. We want to talk a little bit today about obesity, some of the signs, symptoms, and treatment. And we're delighted. That we've got Dr. Ruby Shaw with us. Ruby is an internist and obesity specialist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital located in Plano. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, for our listeners out there, can you tell them what the clinical definition of obesity is and some of the common signs and symptoms?
4: Sure. So obesity um, is really a chronic multifactorial disease, and there's actually different ways of defining it. But the most common way most doctors diagnose it is using BMI or body max index. So a body max index of 30 or higher is when we diagnose obesity. And then from there, uh, based on your BMI, there's different classes of obesity, and so class one is when your BMI is 30 to 34. Class two is 35 to 39. And class three is when it's 40 or higher. But there's other ways of defining obesity, such as you know body fat percentage or waist circumference. Um, but the most commonly used tool to diagnose
1: it is really BMI. So is obesity more prevalent in males or females?
4: It's equally prevalent across genders. Uh, the prevalence is... People who are overweight and and have obesity is about seventy percent across the general population.
1: Let me ask you this: Is it considered in some cases hereditary?
4: Definitely, there is um, genetics does play a role, and it can in some cases be hereditary. Um, So, for example, we know that if you have one parent with obesity, there's about a fifty percent chance that your child will have obesity, and if two parents have obesity the chance of the child having obesity is about 80%. Um, So there is certainly a hereditary component, but as I mentioned, it's really a multifactorial disease, so there's many other factors that play a role as well.
1: You know, in Texas, we hear often that the child and adolescent obesity rate is, is rather high. At what time does obesity, in your opinion, become a true medical concern?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, uh, because it wasn't really until about a decade ago that obesity was even recognized as a medical disease by the American Medical Association. Um, But in my opinion, any time a person starts to become overweight and have obesity further down, um, that's really when it's a medical condition. Sometimes patients will wait until they have several other comorbidities to really address obesity as a problem. But once by BMI standards, you have obesity, that is really when it's a medical concern.
1: So if we look at preventive measures, and we all know about proper diet and exercise, are there other things we can do to reduce obesity?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of times, as you mentioned, we we think obesity is really just about diet and exercise when it's really not. There's really so much more than that. And in fact, Exercise role in obesity um, is really kind of um, less important than some of the other things that play a role in obesity. So some of the main drivers in terms of preventative measures that lead to obesity, um, diet is certainly up there. That's probably one of the main things that lead to obesity when it comes to preventative measures that you could do to address um, preventing obesity. Um, diet plays a huge role, but unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there on social media and fortunately in many other um, outlets. There's a lot of misinformation in regards to diet, um, but that certainly plays a role. Um, I would say more than exercise, behavior plays a huge role. Um, and so with all of our patients, we make sure that we address you know what are the behaviors? What is what is your kind of mindset around obesity? What is your understanding of obesity before we address exercise? Um, outside of that, sleep also plays um, a really big role. Um, a lot of times, there's sleep issues that, once treated, can greatly help the management and treatment of obesity. Um, and then, uh, then of course, exercise also plays a role.
1: You know, many people have picked up pandemic pounds. What are your suggestions to deal with pandemic pounds?
4: Yeah, absolutely. This has been a problem. Um, in our. It, we see this in our patients, um, definitely in Texas, around the country. I think there was a study published in JAMA of about 300 people, which showed that adults who were under shelter-in-place ordered gained about half a pound every 10 days, which translates to two pounds a month or 20 pounds a year, which is really astronomical, especially if you've already been struggling with obesity, having those extra pounds certainly doesn't help. I think one of the first things I would recommend to people is actually to see an obesity specialist. I think a lot of times people don't realize again that obesity is a chronic disease, just like having high blood pressure or diabetes. um, You wouldn't necessarily, you know, just discount that as a problem. You would go see your doctor and talk about it. Um, Obesity, being an obesity specialist, it's actually a a relatively new field. It's one of the fastest growing medical specialties. Um, But that's really where you're going to get a multifactorial treatment plan um, to kind of address the condition as a chronic disease. So that would be really the long term um, treatment for it. Short term uh, to start something at home, I always recommend to my patients, the first thing I always recommend is You know, from a diet perspective, since that plays a huge role in obesity, um, especially if you're at home, working from home, is to remove convenience foods that, you know, processed, easily convenient foods are really high in calories, really high in preservatives and sugar. And so the more you can make healthy eating easier at home and more convenient, the more likely you are to do it. So you know, hide that junk food, throw it away, don't bring it home in the first place if possible, um, really try to remove the convenience items in your food, or at least hide them.
1: So why is obesity such a challenge when people get infected with COVID-19?
4: Absolutely, I think that's a great question. So again, there was another a meta-analysis published. Uh, one of the first meta-analysis of its kind was published in Obesity Reviews in 2020, echoing exactly what you said, that people with COVID-19 are more than 100 times more likely than people of healthy weight to land in the hospital and 75, 74% more likely to be to be admitted to an ICU and um, 48% more likely to die. So it is really a serious problem. Why people with obesity struggle more with COVID than someone who's healthy weight has to do with a lot of factors. One of the main factors is that people with obesity actually have a weakened immune system. Um, A lot of people don't realize this, but adipose tissue is active. Um, like an endocrine gland, it releases inflammatory cytokines, which impairs the function of normal cells and impairs the function of your kind of fighter cells um, in infection. So it's almost like when you have diabetes, Um, a lot of people may not realize, but when you have diabetes, you also have a weakened immune system. So in obesity, the pathophysiology is very different, but, uh, what is similar is that your ability to fight off infection is impaired. The other issue with obesity is it's also a mechanical problem. So because you have more adipose tissue, especially um, around your diaphragm, it impairs lung function and um, you're not able to you know, use your lungs as effectively. And also we know from a lot of studies that people with obesity are more likely to have clots and, and um, have problems like DVTs or emboli to their lungs. So that compounds the problem because COVID-19 also is going to predispose you to clot. So all of these things play a role in someone's ability to, to uh, recover from COVID-19. Are
1: there other chronic illnesses that obesity can create even more problems as we grow older.
4: Yes, absolutely. So uh, what, as I mentioned, one of the main um, problems we see in patients who have obesity is triggering diabetes later on. But there are, are so many other medical conditions it also can predispose you to. Um, some of them are high blood pressure, high cholesterol, osteoarthritis, um, clotting disorders, cancers, actually there's a, 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 a number of cancers, um, obesity um, in our diet plays a role in. Um, so those are really just some of the things, but most conditions and medical diseases out there, um, obesity is going to in some way worsen the problem or make you a higher likelihood of having complications
1: from that problem. What are some of the current forms of treatment to help the patients that are obese?
4: Yeah, I think this is so important to know. Um, and actually where you go for treatment is is going to depend on uh, the type of treatment you get. So what I do, obesity medicine, uh, we focus on non-surgical weight loss care. Um, so I'm going to touch on that in just a second. But if you go to you know, a surgical center, their main form of treatment is going to be surgery, which we can also talk about. But in terms of non-surgical forms of treatment, so we focus on kind of the five big um, drivers of obesity. So we focus on uh, diet, you know, how to improve your understanding of nutrition, how to make it easy to apply to your life, um, behavior change, which has to do also about, you know, regards to our mindset around obesity. So we address that. We address patient sleep issues exercise, but also there's, you know, a number of FDA approved obesity medications that are now approved. So that should also be part of the treatment plan, at least a discussion of that. In fact, the newest obesity drug that was just approved a few months ago is called Wagovi is having excellent results in our patients. Patients are losing, you know, 20% of their body weight in that study um, with the help of that medication, which is absolutely astounding. Um, And then there's also surgical forms of treatment. So the most common there is sleeve gastrectomies. There's also gastric bypass. So typically, I would recommend that someone start out with non-surgical forms of weight loss. And if you need extra help, then, of course, um, go see a surgeon.
3: This is Dr. Ruby Shaw, CEO and founder of Vitality Weight Loss and Wellness Institute in Plano, back with more highly motivating weight loss tips and techniques with Dr. Shaw next on the human side of healthcare
0: covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller.
3: Welcome back. You interested in losing a few pounds? Well, we're talking about it with Dr. Ruby Shaw. She is an internist and obesity specialist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano. And we're kicking off this segment with a look to the future. Dr. Shaw, what's on the horizon?
4: Yeah. So um, what excites me on the horizon is more medications uh, to help patients who are struggling with obesity Um, and also, you know, more people uh, getting certification in obesity medicine to really help our patients because the more access we have to help our patients around the country and all around the world, hopefully the more likely they are to, you know, use that treatment. Um, So I'm excited about this rapidly growing specialty. Um, and more, pers- more more doctors really, you know, learning about it to help their patients. In terms of medications that excite me, absolutely. So, um, Wagovi was just approved, one of the medications used for diabetes. So, there's another medication called Ozempic, which we currently use for diabetes and also often for obesity treatment, although it's not currently approved for obesity treatment. There's a dosing that I know is being studied right now for Ozempic that we hope in the next year Um, That dose 2 milligrams or 1.5 milligrams are studying both those doses of Ozempic. And we hope that those two doses are going to get approved for obesity treatment because that medication, when I use it on my patients to help with obesity um, in the lower doses is very helpful. So I'm excited to see what it's going to do in the higher doses.
1: Would you say it's fair for our listeners who may be struggling with obesity that they should see a medical physician and they should... Uh, be under the care of a physician? Because I think in some cases, you may find another physical reason as to why they are obese. Is that true?
4: Absolutely. There are so many drivers of obesity. And like I said, the definition is that it's very multifactorial. So you have to look at so many different things. And um, if you're not going, if you're not seeking care from the right professional, you're probably not going to get the right treatment. So many people struggle with yo-yo dieting. And part of that reason is, is that we don't get the right treatment for it. So I really stress going to go see a doctor. Um, so there's so many other things that you may not realize that may be driving this problem. So for example, thyroid problems, very, very common. Um, to drive obesity. If you have hypothyroidism, it could make losing weight a lot harder. If you have, um, for example, undiagnosed sleep apnea, that can also make weight loss a lot harder. Um, So looking at all of these things um, is going to be really important
3: for your treatment. Dr. Shaw, I'd like to ask you, you mentioned losing 20% on this new medication. How difficult is it for somebody to naturally, on their own, unassisted, lose 20% if they are even, say, up around that BMI 30, and that's what they would have to lose in order to be normal? How hard is that?
4: That is an excellent question. Wow. Love it. And the reason why I I love that question is because um, I don't think people realize how hard it is to keep... Not just lose weight, but keep it off. I think a lot of times when we enter a weight loss program, you know, we always think about what is that goal? How many pounds do you want to lose? But we forget that the hardest part of weight loss is not just losing the weight. It's really keeping it off. Um, That's really where the struggle is, the yo-yo dieting part of it. You can go on any diet and lose 5, 10 pounds um, there's so many extreme diets, there's so many marketers out, marketers out there that really um, try to confuse people, um, you know, and, and make them think it's so easy. Yeah, losing weight to, for some people on some diets is actually not that hard, but it's keeping it off, which is really, really difficult. And so in the world of obesity medicine, our goal for patients if you is really to lose and maintain off 10% of your body weight. That is wonderful success. Um, if you can come to obesity specialist and maintain off ten percent of your body weight, um so if you're three hundred pounds, that means you've lost and maintained off thirty pounds, you know, for at least a year. You are very successful by all definitions. You know, all doctors will applaud you for that. So 20% is really astounding. That's why uh, we as obesity specialists are so excited about this medication because it's not just helping people lose weight. If you stay on the medication, it will help you maintain that weight off as well. And like I said, that's double the success that we typically get with patients.
3: Okay. We don't like to throw numbers around on the radio (laughs) too much, but let's do a little math here. We're going to do a little Sunday math. Very simple. Is it true that if you net gain, in other words, consume around 3,500 more calories than you expend, that equals a pound? Do you, do you agree with that?
4: That is a very common belief, um, but it doesn't actually turn out to be true because not all calories are the same. So if you're really eating 3,500 calories, well, if you're having 30, you know, it depends. Well, where did, where did they come from? So 3,500 calories, um, you know, of potato chips or 3,500 calories of almonds, it'd be hard to eat that many almonds, but it's possible, <laughs> I suppose, um, It is going to metabolically affect you in, in very different ways. How you metabolize that food is, is very different. Um, once food is metabolized how you expend that is also going to be different. Um, Some of it is going to be through the thermic effect of food. Um, Some of the energy is going to be metabolized just based on the composition of the food. Um, Keep things short. That turns out to actually not be true.
3: So there's a whole industry almost out there of these apps on your phone that you enter everything that you eat and your exercise, and it tells you the net difference. So what is then the value of those tracking apps?
4: Uh, again, another great question. So, um, tracking apps are good and bad. (laughs) So, I'm glad that the tracking apps are tracking something because it turns out when you're starting to treat obesity, one of the important factors is to track something. Just tracking it, whether it's necessarily accurate or not, is going to make you more mindful of it, more aware of it. So, it's, you know, in some ways more likely to change behavior. But the apps that track, you know, calorie expenditure or your exercise are notoriously inaccurate and we don't recommend those. In terms of tracking, what we do recommend is tracking your food intake. And so if you are going to, you know, look at how many calories you're eating in whatever lunch that you're having, those tend to be a little bit more reliable and will be more helpful.
3: One other thing I wanted to ask you is the BMI scale. (laughs) being a guy. Now, if I were to achieve my healthy BMI weight, I would weigh about 10 or 15 pounds less than I did in high school. Yeah. Is it a little skewed against the guys?
4: (laughs) That's a great question. It's not necessarily skewed against the guys, but I think at the end of the day, what's important is to not aim for perfection and to aim for long term progress. So, you know, even if you get the most restrictive gastric bypass surgery, most people are not going to have a normal BMI. And that's okay. What we want to try to do is really just aim for the best that we can. Um, so that's why we talk a lot about, you know, in the field of obesity medicine, maintaining off 10, 20% of your body weight from wherever you're starting. And most times that's not going to be completely normal. But again, maintaining weight off is more important than losing it. But in some ways, you know, men have more muscle mass. So it can certainly feel that way because BMI is not going to distinguish between your muscle mass and adipose tissue. It's just a standard screening tool. So that's why going to a doctor, have them really examine you so that they can take into account, okay, yes, a part of this is going to be your muscle mass really helps.
3: What a perfect transition to what I wanted to ask you next. You're in Plano. How can people get in touch with you?
4: Yeah, so my practice is called um, Vitality Weight Loss and Wellness Institute. We specialize in offering multidisciplinary care to our patients. So every patient that comes to see us isn't just seeing me. They're seeing um, all of the experts in the field. So they're seeing a registered dietitian. We have a culinary dietitian to help with um, your cooking, you're seeing what's called a mindset coach, which they're really experts at behavior change. And especially if you're feeling stuck or not motivated, it's really teaching you how to overcome those things. So you know, we really try to um, take a a really broad, big, focused view on really helping people achieve a lifestyle change.
3: We're going to have more with Dr. Shaw in an upcoming episode. We had several things that we talked to her about that we didn't get to, so we will in the future. Again, Dr. Ruby Shaw at the Vitality Weight Loss and Wellness Institute in Plano. If you missed some of that interview, it's on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. Stay safe. We'll see you next week after the game on the Human Side of healthcare.